Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Professor Hakim Olushei. Professor Olushei is an astrophysicist, cosmologist, inventor, educator, and television personality. He was named a visiting Robinson professor at George Mason University, which is a distinction by which the university recognizes outstanding faculty. He has held professorships at MIT, University of California at Berkeley, the University of Washington, and the University of Cape Town. Dr. Olshay has also served as the Space Science Education Manager of the Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., Chief Science Officer of Discovery Science, and President of the National Society of Black Physicists. He has appeared in science and engineering programming on Netflix, Discovery Science, Nat Geo, PBS, BBC, and appears as a commentator and scientific authority on science channel television shows, including How the Universe Works, Outrageous Acts of Science, Curiosity, NASA's Unexplained Files, Space's Deepest Secrets, and Strip the Cosmos. As if that wasn't enough, Professor Olushei has written an outstanding book on his own life journey, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. So in this conversation, we talk about that unlikely life journey. I really enjoy this conversation. With a great sense of humor and energy, Professor Olushei has an outstanding way of explaining both his unlikely journey and also concepts around the cosmos so all of us can understand and relate better to the world around us. I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation too. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavikoli.com. There's also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy getting those voice messages. Don't forget to follow the podcast. Tuesday conversations with magnificent changemakers from the greater Washington, D.C. region, many of them with national and global impact, like Professor Olushei, and Thursday conversations with brilliant global thought leaders, primarily leadership book authors. Now, here is my conversation with Professor Hakim Olushei. Hakim Olushei, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thank you, sir. I'm happy to be here. Hakeem, there is so much about your own life, the ability you have to communicate science and space in a way that is accessible, that really energizes me about this conversation, but would love to know about that initial upbringing. And you wrote about it in your book, A Quantum Life. So I want to start with the title of the book. Why quantum? I wrote quantum because I feel like human lives are more like the mathematics and philosophy of quantum mechanics, which is the study of the subatomic world, much more so than the world we're used to, the deterministic universe. So here's the difference. 
in a deterministic universe, if I give you the initial conditions of some motion, the equations of physics tell you that there is one trajectory and one final outcome for that motion. The quantum world, by contrast, the initial conditions don't tell you exactly what trajectory is going to be followed. It tells you what are the possible. In the macroscopic world, we're made up of so many tiny particles that we only see the highest probability outcomes because it has to be this and that and that. But when you do experiments at the quantum scale, what you see is that these crazy trajectories that seem completely impossible actually do occur at this small percentage that the laws of physics predict, the quantum physics predicts. So I'm such a person, right? There was a small probability based on my initial conditions for me to end up where I am today. So the title of the book, the subtitle is My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. So it's a quantum life, my unlikely journey. So that unlikely also goes back to quantum because it's an unlikely outcome. It is unlikely. And one of the things I appreciate about both the way you tell your story and the entire mm. experience is the humility with which you approach it. It's not yeah. that I, from the beginning, was looking at the stars and right. wanted to become an astrophysicist, and yeah. I did it all by myself. There right. are so many other factors that played a role in that. It was really important to me to be a physicist, okay? And so the thing about being a physicist is I go around the world, I give these talks about the universe. Quite often, someone will pull me to the side and say, hey, you know, you said that science says this, but this other source says something different. And I always correct them. And I say, you know what? Science doesn't say anything. Science listens. You listen to the universe and you're like, universe, tell me what you are. And then science has a rigorous process of making observations and measurements. It's the exact same way when I was evaluating my life. I had to look back and observe it as objectively as I could, given that it's me, but allow it to tell me the story of what it is. Because before writing my book, I never did this overall look at my life the way I did. But when I did, I could not help but see all these times where people stepped into my life and gave me exactly what I needed to get to the next step. Now, I give them credit because I have to. At the same time, there were people that stepped into my life and were like, yo, do this horrible thing. And I did that too. So <laughs> I didn't want to focus so much on those things, but I think there is a focus to be made there to bring forward some truth. Because the truth is when people make bad decisions, quite often it's not really a decision. It's what makes sense for them at that time in their life. As you read my book, there are times you were like, at one point when I'm in grad school, I point out, oh, you thought I would have made a better decision here, but I did. And the reason why I did it was because it was beyond just making a choice. It was something that was an outside force that was pulling on me that I didn't understand. With that approach, Akeem, as you looked yeah. back at your life, after you were four, your parents divorced. Yeah. What got you to fall in love with reading, studying? We become our parents. And my mother was an avid reader. And I had an older sister. When you're a young boy in a family of females, they kind of take care of you. And I remember I would look through my aunt's encyclopedias at the pictures of snakes. And my mom in the evening, <laughs> it was a time when you didn't always have TV and stuff to do at night. So what are you going to do at night? You open up a book. That's pretty much it. Either you're going to talk to each other or read or play a board game. 
it wasn't a digital world yet. That's what we did. My mother was always reading. That encouraged me. And then my mother's best friend, her childhood best friend, who grew up to have seven children, her youngest child was two years older than me, Darren Brown. He also had like an intellectual leanings. I'm younger than him, two years younger than him, trying to keep up with him. He was a great athlete. He went on in high school to be his MVP of his high school football team in New Orleans. He goes to the Navy and becomes a naval officer, rises high in the submarine fleet. But he was a guide as well. So I did have people pushing me in that direction, not telling me, oh, this is what's important for you to do. Not like that. It's okay, the people around me, they play basketball, I play basketball. They play chess, I play chess. They farm, I farm. They read books, I read books. But I was reluctant to read adult books until I turned nine years old when I virtually had no choice because I was the only thing around and I was bored. So... <laughs> <laughs> Along with reading those books, it seems yeah. like you were also really into experimentation and especially with fire. Man, absolutely. <laughs> you know how it is. If you ever have kids are into everything. So turn a little nine-year-old kid loose on a farm in Deep Woods, Mississippi. Fire is amazing. I don't know if you ever just looked at flames. When you're working on a farm in those days, it wasn't a mechanized farm. We literally used a plow pulled by a mule. That's not what I did. That was Uncle Henry and Mr. Will. They had to do that. But I was amazed just watching how the plow goes through the soil and turns it. It was just like, whoa. It was like it was opening it up. But at the same time, we had all these flammables around. Gunpowder because of hunting. Gasoline, which was often used as a cleaning agent because we're always getting our hands oily. And gasoline really got rid of oil. And you use oil for various things. The best example I can think of is when you castrated pigs. Right. You would have a stick with a cloth wrapped around it, a rag wrapped around it. And after you slice open and you slice out one of the testicles, that rag is dipped in dirty oil. and You put that dirty oil there and that prevents them from getting an infection or some parasite getting in there. So you had uses for these things around you. So once I leave the country, hey, I'm still interested in dealing with flammables. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. They let me. Like when I was a nine-year-old, my cousins in Mississippi that I hung out with were two years older than me. And they would show up with rifles and be like, yo, let's go hunting. Come on, city cousin, <laughs> let's go hunting. And we walk off into the woods with rifles and shotguns. We're nine, 11 years old, chopping wood. I'm using a Kaiser blade sling. You're doing all this stuff that is today in our world of helicopter parenting and worried about liability, our parents wouldn't dare do. We did. Hakeem, Jonathan Haidt, uh, he's a professor at NYU, has written a bunch of books, including Coddling of American Mind, talks about the fact that with keeping our kids so protected, in many instances, they don't build up the resilience and yeah. the anti-fragility to be able to survive in the external world. So you had yeah. a lot of these things thrown at you. But yeah. also, when you turned 11... In yeah. 16 months, you lived in nine different households, yep. five different schools. That's yeah. more than any one individual could potentially handle. Man, and the thing that you didn't mention that was even crazier is that in each household, the man of the house abused me some way. Well, typically physically, beating me, hitting me, working me. There was this one family we lived in. And so my mom had, was living with us there shortly. Then she went back to Mississippi and left me. And so we had a system 
where the son in the house and I would trade off on who did, you know, the set of chores in the home. He did it one week. I did it one week. Once mom left, I was Cinderella. And the key thing is, another important point is that when I say nine households, that's just the places I was at for more than two weeks. If I had put in places that I was at less than two weeks, I could add four more places to that. It was a crazy time. And the neighborhood, South Central LA, Houston Third Ward, Houston uh, South Park area, New Orleans Ninth Ward, New Orleans East, rural Mississippi, those are all challenging communities for a kid to be alone and unprotected. What I learned at that point was... It's better for me to intimidate you than you. It's better to throw the first punch than take the first punch. So that time period of having to fend for myself. And now when you achieve puberty at 13, I'm a tallish guy, but I already had always had a deep voice. So now the whole world targets you. There are some people that won't target a child, but then once you start looking like an adult, now everybody's coming at you. So you had all the reasons in the world, Hakeem, not to make it even at that age. What was it that kept you going? I don't think I have anything in particular that's special. I think that humans do. I think that I look at the news and people who are refugees and people will walk across deserts for hundreds of miles with their children in tow. Humans, if your willpower is intact, and it is, right, then you can't be stopped. And so for me, Everybody around me was struggling to survive. We all were. We're all striving and struggling to survive. Now, we did it differently. The thing that was different about me is I got drawn into stuff that the world values economically that could lead to a white collar career. Now, my family had skilled laborers. On my mother's side of the family, all the males from the first one in the 1800s to come over to today, they are plasterers. In my father's side of the family, they were farmers who became bricklayers. So even though these skills were in the family and that's what it seemed like the thing to do, I was a bookish kid. And no matter what was going on, I was always like people who I know from because we moved around so much. Sometimes at a holiday, people will come that you didn't see since you were like 12 or nine or whatever. And the people always have the same thing to say about me as a little kid. Number one, that I was this little boy with a deep voice. And number two, no matter what else is going on, I was somewhere in the corner with a book. So, you know, like, what's wrong with you? Go outside and play. I think it's a lot harder to get up every morning. My folks still back in Heidelberg, Mississippi, they still live that life. And I'm not going to say that my life now is harder than their life. It's not harder. It's just that what I was interested in was something that was valued. So back then it wasn't valued. They called me book smart. Oh, that boy, Booksmart, don't mind him. He has some value, even though he's not as... Because listen, man, like, I am not exaggerating. People were driving cars at 10, 11, 12 years old. You drive grandma to town. And I told you, you work from like age of seven. When I got to Mississippi, these kids knew how to change the carburetor in your car, replace the heads. They knew all this stuff. They couldn't understand how I didn't know it. How could you be 13 years old and don't know how to drive? It was mind boggling for them. So it's just different worlds, different times, different expectations. A person like myself, I could tell you, friends, that I was like, dude, this guy was smarter than me. He wasn't as bookish, but as far as problem solving, as far as kicking my ass in these games we would play, all that's there. But I happen to fall in love with the universe and physics and that's value. 
As you were doing that, Hakeem, one of the things I have been reflecting on a lot in reading your personal story is a couple of sides of the coin. One is that you could have very easily gotten caught up because of the involvement with drugs and other activities. You could have easily been pigeonholed and railroaded to one part of life, which we do still a lot in our society. And on the other side, the small time that you spent in Houston, just getting the exposure to the different clubs and the swimming, the caring teachers, that also had an impact on you. Oh, absolutely. It did. It did. Those people who reached out to me made an impact because I was, in a way, left to fend for myself out there in the world, especially after my sister got married when I was 10 years old. It was just me and the teachers for the most part. My mom was in and out until high school time came around. I was in these tough communities and the teachers, when they saw a kid who had academic talent like me, they wanted to do something to help. So I was in Houston going to school in the third ward and teachers, yo, join the math club. Yo. And the year before that, it was the same way with the IQ test. It was like, yo, they see this jewel of a kid in the sense of their interest and talent to go with the interest. And the only reason why it appeared that way was because I was such a fond reader. If you read everything, then people think you know everything. You don't know everything, right? No one does. You become good at word stuff. You become good at memorization. You're just working out your brain, right? You're practicing your brain. So that's what happened with me is that I worked on that muscle. What I could do on my own is the education that I received. And so I say to this day, and so that did not include a strong education in mathematics or science, except for what I taught myself. It seems to me that the evidence is pretty clear that the only way a person gets a good science and mathematics education before they are an adult is only one of two ways. One, it's in your family slash community, or two, you just got, if you were able to learn at school, you got lucky. Most schools aren't rolling like that. Most teachers aren't rolling like that. I unbeknownst to me, was preparing myself by reading so much. As you did that, you also had an opportunity to join the Navy and for the Navy to catch you up on some of your core skills. Absolutely. So the Navy did a a few things for me. Number one, discipline and honor were always very important in rural America. So the, the five years I spent in Mississippi, that was hammered into me over and over again. So then you have to go through these tough things. Then I get to the military, again, honor. They take you through hell and you have to rise to the level and it teaches you what you're made of. But then two other things happen. I got health insurance for the first time in my life. So I got a diagnosis that was (laughs) real on the horrible skin condition I had been suffering with, which allowed me to finally treat it well. So I'm not in pain all day, every day. And I learned algebra. So in that program I was in, it was designed to give you the academic skills to go to the university. This is for enlisted people. And then you come out and you give them five or six years as an officer. So it was a program designed for taking people from places like the inner cities, like rural America, where you have a poor education, chances are, but you have the talent and the smarts and the honor and the character And you are qualified to be an officer, but just because of circumstances, you end up enlisted. So this was a mechanism for bringing people into the officer ranks. So I got there. There were two math classes, the regular class and the remedial class. 
I was in the remedial class. In that class, we were taken from arithmetic through calculus in one year. So I got kicked out <laughs> just before the program ended because that skin condition I have that I was diagnosed with properly for the first time, you're not allowed in the Navy with it because it impacts readiness. It's time to man the stations. You can't be over there itching. And, <laughs> you know. so, because it's horrendous. You actually scratch your skin off of yourself. It's so horrible. Because it has this weird property that you itch under your skin, not on your skin. So you, to get in there, you'll rip your skin off. So the Navy was really good for me in that way. And believe it or not, I'm still in contact with my Navy buddies to this day. There's a couple that I wish I could get in contact with that I haven't been able to. But a lot of them, they reach out to me. I reach out to them and we still chat. We hang out when we're in the same city. That gave you some additional capabilities. And your story is going to make a great movie. I know Universal has signed a contract. At some point, they're going to do a great movie. Well, I got to update that. So I got the deal with Universal through with Chadwick Boseman in collaboration, and he passed away. So when the option ended, Universal informed us that without Chad, we're not going forward. So this last summer, 2021, my agent arranged meetings with other producers. Now I have a new deal with two people you may have heard of. Oprah Winfrey and oh, Robert wow. De Niro, technically Harpo Productions and Tribeca. So that deal just got closed at the end of last year. So we're about to start on the script and the treatment, that sort of stuff. Wait, Robert De Niro is not going to play you, is he? No, even in the previous <laughs> one, Chad wasn't playing me. The story ends when I'm like 30 years old. It can't be somebody in their 40s or 50s playing me <laughs> or 60s. So it might be like the movie Moonlight, where you have your adult actor and maybe a teen and a kid that you flash back to or something. Part of what makes your story so fun is that every time I was, he made it now, then I realized, well, actually, you hadn't made it. So no, when man. you went back to Tougaloo College, you ended up dropping out there. Yep, I did. Man, I tell you, so I was... Just self-destructive, right? When I wrote the book, at first it was written differently. Now it's a lot of small chapters. Before I had major segments and then chapters had titles. And one chapter where that time period we talked about where I moved, lived in all those different households, I was going to call that section of the book worthless because that's how I felt unprotected, worthless. And the other thing to realize about the hierarchy that is our nation and every nation there is always a hierarchy, an identity hierarchy, and the people at the bottom of it, you receive messaging your entire life about your worth and your value. I was basically self-destructive. And so after I suffered this one tragedy that I write about in the book having to do with the birth of my first child, I want to stop myself from feeling anything. <laughs> and so I start using the drugs that people were using around me that I had just hadn't used. I just thought, oh, that's heavy. That's not, I don't want to do that. But then everybody was talking it up around me for a year and a half and I had some sense of what it could do. And so I went in and I went in hard. And ultimately after my first research project, I come back to school and my midterm, I'm, I have all Fs. <laughs> so I knew that if I ever was going to continue college, I had to not let all Fs get on my transcript. So I dropped out of school and I realized that I needed to clean up my act. And so I left that life and I got a job, the job I could get, which was being a janitor at a hotel. 
and I drop out. I'm working as a janitor and I don't see a pathway, but I'm looking for opportunities, but not having any real strategy other than let me put in applications. <laughs> okay. They're, they're paying me $4 an hour here. Oh, a job opened up. They're taking applications. Let me go put in an application. That's how that works. Ultimately, what happens is I attempt to move up to Bellhop so I can get tips and they don't let me move up to Bellhop. And I realized at that point that without a university education, even though I didn't know what was on the other side of it, the whole world kept saying, oh, this is what you do and you make more money than if you don't do that. So I'm like, I don't want to be a janitor my whole life. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a janitor because, you know, the other people I was janitors with were these three dudes from the blind school. And I think all work is valuable. And, and in fact, I would be a janitor again tomorrow if I had to. I'm not going to jump off a building if I become less fortunate than I am today. I'm going to get to work and whatever it is I can do. That gave you the importance of that education, mm. eventually finishing and going to Stanford. Yeah. In going to Stanford, were people, first of all, wondering what country Tougaloo College is in? <laughs> yeah, man, nobody. <laughs> yeah. That's when I got my phrase. Nobody had heard of Tougaloo. So I tell people, oh, that's because it's so exclusive. We don't even let other people know it exists. You know, it's a small, historically black college in Mississippi. You will see a white kid or two on campus because we have this exchange program with Brown University. <laughs> and what's really interesting is that sometimes those students will transfer to Tougaloo and finish their degree there. And that's the same of our professors. We have these professors in the sciences who came down during the civil rights era. Their idea was, oh, I just got my PhD from Harvard or Cornell or wherever, Caltech. I'm going to go down there, help out for a couple of years, and then go do my science career. And they just ended up staying. And those are the cats who made me. My professors are just those people. You got the opportunity also at Stanford to work with Art Walker. That's right. Who had a significant impact on many people, including your life. Absolutely. So Art Walker was the first person to have an x-ray satellite to look at the sun. And his first graduate student was Sally Ride, America's first woman in space. So I was one of his team in the early 90s, right? I, I joined, I showed up at Stanford in 91. My life had been in the hood and the country. Nothing in between, nothing beyond. Where I came from, a dude like Art, we would call whitewashed. And the world that I grew up in was so racially segregated. When I saw his research group was primarily white dudes, I was like, what the hell? And so I was there. I did two years undergrad classes, 91 and 93. Then I started in the grad program, completed at 99. I got my master's in 95, PhD in 99. Then I went to Silicon Valley. And art was a different kind of black dude than the kind I had interacted with. Because why is he giving <laughs> his knowledge to the white guys? Shouldn't it be reserved? Isn't it like us against them? But art taught me a different way of being. You treat everybody the same. And let's not be tribal. Let's be Americans. Let's be humans. And that's a better way of being in my estimate. That's how I have behaved ever since art taught me that way. And the other thing, too, is like handling difficulties, especially in a workplace. Most people had two ways of dealing with things. Tell you off, punch you in the face. I was no good <laughs> at tell you off. So I just had punch you in the face. That was it. So... True story. Like, I'll tell you a funny story. One of the guys who was older than me at Tougaloo, he now is a researcher for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And he invited me to speak in Pretoria, Illinois, where he lives in 2018. 
And I go, his name is Curvin Evans, Dr. Curvin Evans. And I was talking to him, I was like, Curvin, man, I just want you to know, you're my favorite person to basically listen to speak physics at Tougaloo. You had it like nobody else, dude. I just want you to know how much I looked up to you back in those times. And Curvin says this to me. He goes, when I first met you, I thought you were a cool dude too. But you remember in that day in the cafeteria when you jumped across that table and punched that dude in the face? After that, I was like, I can't hang out with him. Now, here's the thing. I had a reputation not for being violent, but for being a good fighter from my childhood. Nowadays, I can be honest about it. I wasn't a good fighter. I was scared. That's what I was. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> let me not get hit and throw as many punches as possible. And I was good at taking hits and dodging hits. I would have hit the other guy more than they would hit me. So everybody, oh, he's a great fighter. No, I'm not. I'm scared. <laughs> That's what it is. After finishing your PhD and postdoc, Hakeem, you ended up in Silicon yeah. Valley. Why not stay in Silicon Valley? A lot of people aspire to yeah. make their billions in Silicon Valley. For me, Silicon Valley was like a mystery that I wanted to experience. So I'm all hood, right? So I'm 13 years old. Then I'm in the country. Then I go to Stanford, <laughs> Silicon Valley. <laughs> And people are talking about, when I got to Stanford, I didn't even know that Stanford was this highfalutin university. All I knew is that they had graduated 30 black PhDs in physics. So I thought that's a place I could go and stand a chance of actually completing my degree and graduating. Now, I had no idea of this place called Silicon Valley, but I was very active in the student community in various ways. So I kept hearing about Silicon Valley, these companies, stock options, all this. So I wanted a piece of that. So when I went on the job market, I got offers in regular academia. I got Wall Street offers because I was a modeler solving differential equations computationally and options trading was new, Black Skulls model. And I got these offers from technical industry. So I ended up going into technical industry because Art Walker's wife stopped me in the grocery store and scolded me <laughs> and told me I better make a decision, <laughs> damn it, because I was like waffling. And so I went there. With the idea that I'd get stock options, they'd vest, I'd leave and come back to academia. And everything was going great. I had over a half million dollars in stock options. But the problem was I finished school in 1999 and the bubble burst in 2001. That was the end of that. I got a great education because one time I was the only non-Korean member of my group. Groups were like five, six people. One time I was the only non-Chinese member of my group. One time I was the only non-Indian member of my group. I found myself me and a group of Germans, me and a group of Israelis, me and a group of Brits. And so I learned how different cultures interact, how they negotiate. And I also learned about traditional historic animosities that I knew nothing about. <laughs> and so like when I was in the Korean group, they're like, yeah, we handle Japan and that region of the country. We need a non-Korean to talk to the Japanese. Why? I didn't know that the Brits, the Scottish and the Irish, right? So I'm stationed in Ireland for a month and <laughs> they're telling me all this stuff. So it was a great education in technology in intellectual property, because I got several patents at that time, but also in how to interact with different. And here's the other thing. When I got to Stanford, I knew how vastly undereducated I was, but I also knew that I was made of tougher stuff. Even in the military, I could outwork anybody. I had that country background where you, 12 years old, they got you in those woods working harder than any adult should. Man, I get to Silicon Valley. And I think I'm going to use my outwork everybody superpower. And I show up Saturday night at 2 a.m. Guess who else is in the building? Not any <laughs> of the Americans, but damn it, 
the Chinese, the Indians, the Koreans, they're in there too. And I'm just like, whoa, there goes my superpower. Now I need another angle to distinguish myself. I think your superpower is why we are fortunate that you decided to return to academia and also educate the public on astrophysics, because your superpower is your ability to communicate, not just with your natural energy and enthusiasm, but with an ability that makes the science accessible. A lot of scientists have a heck of a time communicating to the non-scientific community. So- I am glad that you decided to pursue both academia and education through whether it's the TV series you're doing, through the books you have written. So you are an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. What is astrophysics? What does an astrophysicist do, Hakeem? I am a terrible example, okay? Because (laughs) (laughs) whenever I join a university, there's always a debate between the physicists and the astronomer slash astrophysicists of which one am I? Because I've done both. And that's the thing. And so astronomers don't typically build experiments, but I worked for Art Walker and we had the great benefit of designing the experiment, building it ourselves, flying it ourselves, analyzing the data ourselves. So then I go to Silicon Valley where I'm developing technologies again. I'm developing the tools that make the chips and I'm developing the chips themselves experimentally. Then I go to Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory where there is a a new detector that's made by this guy, Steve Holland, that is the detector now for what's going on within a dark energy camera, is going into the Vera Rubin telescope, is used in cosmic microwave background radiation. No, that's the TES. But (laughs) this type of detector I went there and I was both developing the detector as an instruments, as well as going to the observatory and observing supernovae. So I do both of them. And the thing about me is that I get bored fast. So I move from field to field. And what I've learned is that in 18 to 24 months, if you go into a new field and you work on some problem and you get what you get, I'm not going to say solve it. You make a contribution, you write the paper. At that point, you're now one of the few world's experts on that topic. So in 18 to 24 months, you can be a world's expert on the topic. So that's what I've done. I went from solar physics to semiconductor physics to dark energy and cosmology to big data and near-field cosmology to to ion propulsion. And now I'm even starting to work on an experiment in climate change to reverse help engineer our atmosphere. What I do is not representative of what astrophysicists or astronomers do in general. You like to dabble in a lot of different areas. Part of your fascination is with the sun that was your PhD thesis. It, It is the energy source for everything that's on earth. And you say, as the sun is getting bigger every day, eventually the earth won't last. Yeah. What is that concept and how can we understand that, Hakeem? Well, it's an interesting thing about stars because I think that we've done a poor job of educating people about stars. One of the things that's bad about it is that a star is really best thought of as two things. We think of it as one thing. One part is the core where the fusion reactions are going on. And the other part is that which surrounds the core and goes up to the surface. And we call that portion the envelope. And so the envelope presses down on the core and 
If you compress a gas, you make it hotter. It's just a law of physics. You expand the gas, it gets cooler. So the core is super hot, which allows it to undergo nuclear fusion. Today, it's about 15 million degrees Kelvin. But the core and the envelope evolve together and separately. So the thing about the star is that there's so much matter gathered together that gravity would just push it down to nothingness and turn into a black hole if there was nothing else pushing out. But there is something pushing out. And the main thing pushing out that prevents it from going down and collapsing on itself is the pressure from the light streaming out from the core. Now, when the core is burning on the sun, it's what's called hydrogen fusion produces a byproduct of helium. And the core is not hot enough to burn the helium. The hydrogen burning begins at 10 million degrees. Helium doesn't burn until it gets to 100 million degrees. All right. What did I say the temperature of our core is right now? 15 million. So what that means is inside that core, there's a lump of helium sitting in there that's not burning. That means that non-burning helium does not have an outward pressure from light coming out of it because it's not burning. So that means that the core shrinks down even more which makes it hotter. The envelope in response expands. So the core has a non-burning core inside of it. It's like a, the core of the core is non-burning, which caused the core to shrink, which caused the core to become hotter, which caused the envelope to expand. So every day the core shrinks a little more and the envelope expands a bit more. So you have to recognize that the Earth's orbit is 200 times the sun's radius, like 215, 216 times the sun's radius. So when the sun expands to becoming a red giant, it's going to swell up to being over 200 times its current size. <laughs> Just the tip of the iceberg with the yeah. power also of your explanation, mm. where even someone that hasn't fully studied the science can understand the concept of why the sun would expand and how eventually that would result in earth not lasting. Now, yeah. my daughter found out I'm talking to you and she, the 15 year old is very curious because you say the universe we see is an illusion and yeah, she's yeah. been very much fascinated with that. Would love yeah. to know some of your thoughts with respect to that also, Akeem. Oh, man, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> man, let's just start with a simple thing. Mass. How do we define that? What is matter? Anything that has mass and takes up space. So what's this stuff mass? I'll tell you what it is. It's an illusion. It doesn't exist. And Albert Einstein figured that out first when he wrote down what a lot of people call E equals MC squared. What he wrote down was M equals E divided by C squared. And here's how he thought about it. If I have a chunk of iron, let's take this. This is my chunk. And let's say, for example, I add something to it and that something has no mass. Does it become heavier? So the stuff he imagined is heat. I can transfer heat from one piece of metal to another just by putting a hotter piece in contact with it. All right. Now, the next question he asked was, suppose I have a piece of metal and I take something away from it that does not have mass. For example, I can take a piece of iron and heat it up 
So it's glowing. Now light is leaving it and the light has no mass. Does it become lighter? Does it weigh less? And the answer in both cases was yes. You add heat to a mass, it becomes heavier, even though heat has no mass. If it emits light, it becomes lighter. It weighs less, even though the light that left has no mass. And so what Albert Einstein wrote down was not E equals MC square. He wrote M equals E divided by C square. So the way that is interpreted is if I add heat, that's a certain amount of energy E. It's as if I added a tiny amount of mass E divided by C squared, the speed of light squared. If it glows, that energy, that light that's leaving possesses energy. And it's as if a small amount of mass left the object that has a mass equal to the energy of that light divided by the speed of light squared. Mass is an illusion and you're mostly empty space. The nuclei that make up your body, they're hundreds of thousands of times their own size apart from each other. So if humans were distributed that way, what's 100,000 times my size? If I'm roughly two meters, the nearest human would be 200 kilometers away. If the humans on Earth were distributed like the atomic nuclei in your body, there would be no human within 200 kilometers, yet you think you're solid. Another thing, check this out. If you look at the galaxies in the universe, they tend to be 10 to 1,000 times their own size apart from each other, all right? You know what else is about 1,000 times its own size apart from each other? The molecules of air in your room. So thinking of the universe of galaxies, the best model for it is the gas in your room. But one big difference, and that is, is that the galaxies are operating under the influence of gravity, so they collapse down into these structures, filaments and voids, whereas the air in the room is pretty much evenly distributed. If you step back far enough from the universe, it looks like the air in your room. So what is our universe really? The way I look at it is, there are these different realms that exist. There's the realm of the normal, there's the realm of the subatomic, there's the realm of the cosmological, and there's potentially realms beyond those realms, the realms of fields, the realm of the multiverse, which now seems to be real, (laughs) (laughs) which is insane. It really is. And that's just the beginning of it, both with respect to your own personal story and your communication of these elements of whether it's science, astrophysics, all of these aspects that I have found myself even more excited about learning. I appreciate much of your enthusiasm and your ability to communicate these things. Thank you. In addition to your own book, Hakeem, where can the audience both follow you? And for those that are interested in finding out more about the science, learn more from you. So. The first thing is the new series, season 10 of How the Universe Works, is now out on SciGo app Discovery Plus. I'm also in a Netflix series that came out in October called Baking Impossible. And I'm in a PBS Nova, Universe Revealed is the name of that one, which is also available via streaming. I am on social media. I am primarily on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I need to get some TikTok going. I kind of dis, what is the phrase? Disconnected from Facebook a bit, but I try here and there to put announcements there. And yeah, so my book you can find in on Amazon in bookstores everywhere. And there's even the UK version of it, which is out of Hatchet 
publications. Here it's Penguin Random House. In the UK, it's Hatchet. Your book is outstanding, inspiring in so many ways, in a, a way that also communicates humility and the responsibility that the broader community has to the individuals. You also have co-authored a great children's book on science. You -hmm. continue to put out great uh, content on science, which I really appreciate because I was first fascinated with your own personal story, Hakeem. And the more I learned about it and the more I saw your work, the more fascinated I became with your work. So Uh, you have pulled me into the So you're a nerd too now. (laughs) Yes. A wannabe nerd, that's part of what you do brilliantly. That's why I'm happy that you chose this as a profession. You make the science accessible to those of us who are not scientists. Let me give you an insight. A lot of people used to say to me, oh, thank you for dumbing it down. I don't dumb down anything. (laughs) This is just how I think and talk. So it's not that I'm like, oh, let me say it in a way that other people can understand. It's like, no, let me tell you how I understand. <laughs> Combined with your enthusiasm, it's beautifully done. Thank you. You did a three-minute talk in mm. a prison where you ended it by saying, you and I have infinite choices. And yeah. to me, that infinity is hope. Thank yeah. you so much for giving hope through your story and giving hope through making the science and the astrophysics more accessible to so many people. I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your journey and some of the science with the partnering leadership community. Thank you, Hakeem Olushei. Thank you, Mahan. It is my honor and pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.